I, I invite you to read with me beginning in verse 7 of chapter 2. John writes, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Those last two phrases of that sentence there are the ones I really want us to grab onto this morning. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That's good news. <laughs> That's good news. The darkness is fading away and the the true light is already evident. Now, John starts this passage, this, this uh, small section here, with the word beloved. And it is an affectionate term in, in many respects, but it is found, its root is found curiously in the word agape. Now, some of you may have heard that word before. Uh, it is Greek, it's a Greek word for love, and it's, but it's not used in classical Greek very often, uh, hardly at all, in fact. The reason we find it in the New Testament so much is because the writers who, who translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek began to use that word to describe the love of God. Now, that, that document that they created, the Greek Old Testament, we know it as the Septuagint. And uh, it's there that they began to unpack what agape really means. Now, um, as I said previously, it, it sounds like an affectionate term, and it truly is. The question is, is the, uh, is the Apostle John uh, trying to communicate his love for uh, the people that he's writing to, or is he trying to communicate God's love for the people that he's writing to? And the answer is clearly both. It's both. It's not exclusively God's love, and it's not exclusively the Apostle John's love. Um, turn with me uh, over one or two pages in your Bible to chapter four of this same epistle chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, and we're going to see this definition that John brings to the word agape or love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. You see, there is this connectivity with this understanding that love is indeed connected to God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. In other words, it was made real in us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's a great big theological word right there, propitiation. What in the world does that mean? Well, in short, that word means that that God has expressed his love in that he has bought us back. He's ransomed us from, from sin. He's ransomed us from destruction. He's bought us back. And how has he done that? Did he empty his pockets and said, here, here's the ransom? No, he gave himself. He stepped forward himself in Christ and said, I am the ransom for you. And that's what the word propitiation means. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us. He lives in us. And his love is perfected in us. You see that wonderful interplay of the idea that God's love becomes part of our experience. Not only are we loved, but we are then able to express his love as well. That's what is wrapped up in the word agape. And that's how the apostle starts this beloved. Those you who are loved by God and me and, and you are dear ones. That's what the apostle is saying. Now, um, that this is the context. This kind of love is the context that that uh, John begins to speak about the commandments. And the idea here is that the evidence of the reality that God's love has been manifested in us is seen in how we love each other. In other words, our Walk matches our talk, as we learned last week. Again, verse 7, I'm not writing a new commandment, but an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning. So what is this old commandment that he is speaking of? Uh, well, it's important that we understand that the word old here is associated with the word beginning in the same sentence. Now, so what is the beginning? What is the beginning that, that John is speaking of? Is it is it creation? Um, afterwards, did, did, after all, did you know that uh, the word Genesis means the beginning? Yes. Um, maybe, is it that beginning that he's speaking of? Or maybe he's speaking of the beginning or the origin of the Mosaic law, the, the Ten Commandments and all of that associated with it. I think, however... If we begin to dig a little deeper and begin to search what does John mean by this word elsewhere, um, we'll find out. Look at chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning of this, this uh, epistle. Paul, or excuse me, John writes, What was from the beginning? What we have heard, 
what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see, the beginning that he is speaking of is the beginning of his relationship with Jesus. It's a contemporary kind of experience. The beginning is the beginning of his life in Christ. He says, I'm not writing a new commandment, but an old one. And the old commandment is the word which you have heard. This, which you have heard, speaks of that very contemporary experience with the, with the commandment. It's the same consistent message that they have heard from the Apostle John about Jesus. Now, there is great comfort in, the, in this consistency, and there's great confidence and conviction found in it as well. There's comfort in the fact that, no, it's not some brand new, weird, kind of unusual message or commandment that he's speaking of. No, it's the same one. And it's, there's confidence in it as well, because the past is the best predictor of the future, Right? And what you've experienced in the past in, in understanding the work of Christ is what is going to continue here in this commandment. But there's also conviction in it. You see, the truth, the truth hasn't changed. In this, it's a, this idea of the old commandment, it's the, it, it's the same truth, but your experience of it still challenges you. When you came to Christ, you were convicted of your sin by the Holy Spirit. But that conviction still continues. You're still challenged by the, by the Holy Spirit, by his word as well. So there's comfort, confidence, and conviction in that, in that which they have heard. Verse 8, on the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So on the other hand, this is a new commandment. Is John confused here? Or is he trying to confuse us? What's, what's up with this? Well, the, the idea here is that the truth of the commandment is multifaceted. You look at it from a different angle and you get a different perspective. I've got a couple illustrations to bring to your attention, to bring that to light. Um, it all depends on you, the, the perspective that you bring to the truth to determine what you perceive. The next one is even, uh, uh, I think, even a better illustration of this. This, what we see here is that the truth is this cylindrical object, but the, the shadow of it represents, it looks completely different, doesn't it? And that is the reality that our perspective matters and, it, and our perspective changes depending on where we are in our lives. So what's new about this commandment? Yes, it's perspective, but in in specific, what's new about this commandment is the fact that Jesus and his life and power resident within us 
causes us to go deeper and deeper and deeper in our walk with him. And so each step we take in a deeper walk with God, our perspective changes. You see, our life in Christ isn't meant to be static. It's not meant to be the same old, same old. And the truth is that if that's the way it is, something is desperately wrong. Rather, we are, we are called dynamic, dynamic relationship that is progressive, always growing. I think it's fair to say that if we're not growing as a believer, we're dying. That's a pretty serious statement. You see, our, our life in Christ is not meant to be one and done kind of thing. It is a, a continual walk of growth. Now he says, I'm writing a new commandment, which is true in him and in you. It's true. It's true. And the range and the ramifications of that truth are, are experienced, uh, say, first, when you meet Christ, you know him primarily as your savior. You know that you're a sinner and he's your savior. But the truth of that reality continues to expand and touch every area of your life. Has the truth changed? No, but the reach of it, the ramifications of it do continue to change. Um, in many respects, that would be likened unto the, the understanding of what it means to continually be sanctified in Christ, to, that our walk would be more and more conformed to that of Christ himself. This is a new commandment that is true in him. How is it true in him? Well, well, John 13, the apostle writes in his gospel these words, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Well, wait a second. That's not a new commandment, is it? I mean, seriously, that's found in the Old Testament, that you love one another. Leviticus points that out. Um, what's, uh, what's new? Well, what's new is the next phrase, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the question is, how has Jesus loved us? Well, he says, Matthew 20 just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how he loves us. He came to give his life for ours. Now, Isaiah 54 unpacks this a little further. The love of God is, is explained here regarding God's attention or his devotion to Israel, God's people, his children. There Isaiah writes uh, for the voice of God, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That, that word, loving kindness, has become my favorite Hebrew word. I don't know a lot of Hebrew, okay? But this word 
is one that expresses something just enormously delightful about God. And it's really fun to say, too. The Hebrew word is chesed. Just turn to your neighbor and say chesed. It's fun to say, right? And what it means is that this is a covenant love. It's built into God's God's decision to love. And it's not something that, that he will dismiss. Now, the, the writer of Lamentations says that this loving kindness is old, but it's brand new every morning. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, says the writer. Note also that it's new in him because it, Jesus brings a brand new understanding of the old commandments. Um, just for instance, in Matthew 20, 22, we read about the fact that this lawyer came to Jesus and he tried to test him, wanted to, to trap him. And Jesus brought a brand new summary of the of the the law and the prophets. The, the, the lawyer asked him, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And, and Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind. That's Deuteronomy chapter six. That's, that's the Shema. That's what every good little Jewish boy learns in his childhood. Now, he goes on to say, this is the great and foremost commandment. But the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's found in Leviticus 19. Then Jesus says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So Jesus brings a brand new summary to the commandments. But he also brings a brand new standard to the commandments. You see, the disciples are called not only to love each other as they love themselves, but in the same way that Jesus loves them. That's a selfless, sacrificial love, even, even unto death. Thirdly, Jesus brings a brand, brand new scope to the the commandments. In other words, a brand new breadth and length and height and depth to the commandments. The parable of the Good Samaritan is, is, the, is a, a great illustration of that. We, we're, we know that we're all called to quote unquote love our neighbor, but he says it's not just the people who live next door. It's anybody who has need of compassion and help regardless of their color, their creed, or their, their class, or the category that they live in. It includes even our enemies. So he says, I'm writing a new commandment which is true in him, in Jesus, but it's also true in you. How is this new commandment new in us? Well, it's new because we apprehend it in a brand new way. We finally really get it. In John chapter 3, Jesus is approached by Nicodemus, who is a, uh, a teacher of the law. 
He's part of the Sanhedrin, the religious elite. And there Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, now, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Nick, Nick, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you, you know where it comes from and where it's going. But you are, excuse me, you don't know where, it's, where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, when we are born again as believers, we begin to understand things that we never even knew about before. We begin to apprehend things in a new way. That's, that's one of the, the newnesses that Jesus brings. But he also brings a new ability, a real new capability and capacity to do things we've never done before. That's why Paul wrote, writes in Romans 6, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that Christ, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Even so, he says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, Having that ability is something that Jesus alone can bring to us. He also, it's new, this commandment is new because it also enables us to do new things, to have new action, to really do it. You know, it's, it's one thing to have the capability. It's an, a completely different thing to actually do the thing. And that's, that's why, again, Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, let love be without hypocrisy. That's kind of hard, isn't it? No deception, no covering up, no anything that would discolor it. But he goes on. Let love be with hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless, bless those who persecute you, who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Seriously? Who do you think you're talking to? I mean, do I have a big red S on my chest and a cape on my back? No. Paul is, is talking to us like he expects us to actually do this. He goes on, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You see, the commandment is new because Jesus gives us the capability, yes, not just the capability, but the actuality of doing these very things. Now, verse 8 again, I'm writing a new commandment to you which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John is writing this encouragement because the transformation has already begun. Romans 13, the Apostle Paul writes that the night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. You see, every single Jew at that time understood that there was a division in history. There's the present age and the age to come. Now, we typically think that the present age means right now. Surely that's what it means. It's the present age after all, right? And the age to come should be in the future somewhere. Here's another big theological term, eschatology or eschatological. It means a time at the end. That's surely the age to come. But the New Testament says, no, wait a second. The age to come was inaugurated when Jesus came. That's the age to come. So we are now living in this overlap of the present age and the age to come. Jesus has ushered in this new age. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Note as well, not only have believers been delivered from the present age, they have already begun to taste the power of the age to come. The writer of Hebrews says, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, what is the heavenly gift? That is salvation and have been made partakers with the Holy Spirit. How does that work? Well, because when we're saved, Jesus comes into our lives and the Holy Spirit takes up residency. That's the wonder of the gospel, right? But it doesn't stop there. They've, they've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and they have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Hmm. The powers of the age to come. You see, darkness is all about this present age. The true light, which according to J uh, John is shining already is Jesus Christ. He is the one, the light who came into the world. 
Again, Nicodemus is encountered with Jesus in uh, the Gospel of John chapter 3. Jesus says, this is a judgment that the light has come into the world. That is speaking of himself, right? And men have loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's what happens in the light. But he who practices the truth comes into the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. In other words, walking in the light means that what we do, our deeds, will have their origin with God. They're not simply the expression of ourselves. Now, he is true. Jesus is true. Not in the same sense that a, uh, a, there's a true statement and a false statement, but rather um, a, the difference between a real and an unreal thing or the shadow of something and the real thing. We saw that illustration before. The shadow gives a, a, a sense of what that is, but it doesn't capture the reality. The word true is, is one of John's favorite adjectives. He talks about the true or the real light, but he also says, uh, talks about the true bread, the true vine. And the idea here is that the true light, the, the true vine, the true bread is the heavenly reality. This new command remains new because it belongs to a new age. The new age that Jesus ushered in. And indeed, the light of Jesus is already shining. John goes on with this analogy of the light. Verse 9, read with me. The one who says he is in the light yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John sets love and hatred in opposite corners. And that's honestly, that's where they belong, right? But he also says light and darkness are mutually exclusive. Well, yeah, that makes, makes sense. But what about the transition from dark to light and light to dark? Isn't there some middle ground here? John's explanation here suggests, no, there's no twilight zone. <laughs> it's, it's, it's either or. Verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. You see, the loving Christian who lives in the light, there is nothing in him to make him stumble. The light shines on the path and we can see clearly and walk without stumbling. In other words, if we love people, we can see clearly how to avoid anything that would offend or speak of hatred to them. 
we can clearly avoid sinning against them. Love clears, it clears the way. It, it uh, reorients us. It gets rid of confusion. The person with hatred in his heart, because he is in the darkness, walks around in darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. You see, hatred distorts and confuses. It obscures. Love sees clearly. It thinks clearly. And, and it, it brings balance to our outlook and our judgments and our conduct. But hatred, hatred, uh, it's, it's bad on two levels. Number one, hatred harms the one who is hated, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. But hatred also harms the one who is doing the hating. The one who hates his brother, verse 11, is in the dark and walks around in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. You see, hatred, again, blurs vision, creates distortion and confusion. The, the real danger here is that what we do intentionally becomes part of us unintentionally. Let me illustrate. If we, if we start off in a path, we set a path, a strategy in communication of... of uh, deception somehow maybe we're selling something and we dress it up and make it look all pretty but we cover up some of the the uh, stuff that's not so good just so that the buyer will bite right there's a bit of deception in there and if we if we begin to go down that road if that's our strategy that's our tactic. It's a tactic of darkness. It's a tactic of deception, of cheating, and even lying. And when we go down that path, we begin to have to reinforce that over and over and over again. And inevitably, we become under the control of the very darkness that we have set our strategy with. Martin Luther said, see to it that he who hurts you does not cause you to become evil like him. For he is the victor who changes another man to become like himself while he himself remains unchanged. Booker T. Washington says it a different way. Booker T. Washington was a slave at the, at the period of emancipation in our country. And he became a very educated, an orator and, and an author and even counseled presidents. This is his take on that very same idea. He says, I will never allow a man so to demean my soul as to cause me to hate him. You see, 
a person or a situation which first hurts us wins a double victory if we allow it to. Not only does it inflict pain, but it causes the one on whom the pain has been become inflicted to become bitter and hate-filled. And that just creates more pain. The true Christian, John says, is the one who knows God and walks in the light. He both obeys God and loves his brothers. The authenticity of his faith is seen in his right relationship with God and his fellow human beings. Now, now that it, it, this whole passage is, is set up in a way that kind of could cause us to think, is John, does John think we're living in the dark? Does John think that we're hating? I have a feeling that maybe that's, he decides to step back now. These next few verses are a complete digression. And he reassures the people that he's writing to. And I think it's because he doesn't want them to, to think that he's, he's suggesting that they somehow are living in hatred, somehow living in darkness. He reassures them in their faith and in their practice. Verses 14, or 12 through 14, read with me. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Now, there's several, uh, there's six statements here, right? Three pairs. And, and it's interesting because they are, they are all, um, it's interesting because the tense uh, begins to cause us to think curiously about this. Um, I'm writing and then I have written. What's going on here? Well, the truth is, I think John is simply reiterating. Because he's saying this, basically the same thing twice, right? But he's doing so uh, very intentionally. Verse 12, I'm writing to you little children. That word, little children, is technon. It, is, it, it speaks of uh, an infant, one who has just been born. Now, he... he uh, he, he uh, reiterates in the, the latter half of verse 13, I have written to you children because you know the father. In his first statement about children, it's because you've been forgiven for his name's sake. You see, those who are just been born, just reborn, the primary thing is that they are forgiven. And they're forgiven by Jesus. Jesus' namesake there means all of his person brought to their aid. 
But in the, the latter half of 13, I have written to you children. That's a different word. That is a word that speaks of uh, a young child, like a six or seven or eight year old, okay? Someone who has started down this path of growth. And note that he says, I've written to you because you know the Father. Now, that is um, reflective of the fact that there's already some growth happening. And they begin to know God. That is truly the, 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 the big deal in terms of, of the Christian life, getting to know God. And it's a continual pursuit. It's interesting because he uses the same idea of knowing God to describe the fathers. Look at verse 13. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him. You know him who has been from the beginning. They, they, it speaks of this, these categories here, children, um, young men, and fathers are not speaking of, of physical age. They're speaking of spiritual maturity. Now, he goes on. I'm writing uh, to you fathers because you know him. And he does that twice. You've known him who is from the beginning. As we grow in our faith, as we mature, what happens? We begin to know God and his sovereignty in all of time. It's not just about me and my need for forgiveness right now. It's about God in his, the breadth and majesty of his reach. Now he goes on. And he says, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Note here that this idea of being a young, young person growing in the faith is connected with overcoming the evil one. That's because as we grow as believers, the big task is, is not just experiencing forgiveness. No, it's, it's, it's about conforming our life to Christ and allowing the power of the resurrection to transform how we live. And what is that focused on? Very often it's walking away very intentionally from sin. It is saying no to the enemy. Now, it's interesting that he says this, uh, you've overcome the evil one. Uh, in, in verse 13. In verse 14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. That It's very interesting because those words, I've written to you because you are strong, and the word of God abides. Those are present tense words. In other words, that's the reality. You have, you have, uh, you abide and you are, you are strong and the word abides in you. It's living. And it, by the way, it's interesting to know that that idea, the word of God has an article attached to it. First verse of John's gospel comes to mind. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, as he 
as he unpacks this, those two words are in the, the present tense, but, and you have overcome the evil one. The word overcome there is in the perfect tense. It means not only that you have, you have overcome in the past, established in the past, but you are able to continue to overcome. That is this good news. This good news that God has given us this capacity, not only in the past, but in the present. And to sum all this up, John is writing this word of encouragement to say you don't have to be overwhelmed by the darkness. You don't have to be overwhelmed by the evil. Instead, beloved, you are loved and you're secure in Christ. You're secure in his forgiveness. You're secure in his grip of grace, his mercy. And that all means freedom to you. It means that you're free from sin. You're free from fear. You're free from hate. You're free to love. You're free to live with assurance, with joy and peace, to live in a manner that pleases God. More than that, you are free to choose. You see, the, the, apostle, um, the apostle has included this, this language of freedom throughout his epistle. It, it speaks of the fact that we have the opportunity to choose. The decision is ours to make. We're, ch we're challenged to choose to walk in the light. This doesn't diminish God's sovereignty at all. He is still sovereign, and he has authority over all things. But it does underline the fact that we have a decision to make. That very decision, that the right of making that decision, is actually preserved by God himself. If you think about it, the reality is that God built choice into the order of things, even heavenly things. That's why there's evil. Now, is God uptight about that? He's not uptight about it at all. He's not threatened by that freedom. He's not threatened by that evil. No, not at all. He's not panicked. He's not terrorized by that. And neither should we be. Because the living word of God that dwells within every single disciple of Jesus means that we have overcome the evil one as well. Jesus is our authority and our power over all evil. Even the devil himself. And the good news is this, the darkness is passing away and the light is already shining. That's good news. We don't have to be thrown into despair. We don't have to be swirling down into the depths of, of, of depression because of what's going on around us. No, the light is already shining. God is already transforming. 
And it most certainly shows itself in our lives. Would you stand up with me? Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we are grateful for this truth that that your grip of grace upon our lives is there because um, you indeed are God. You are sovereign over all things. But that grip of grace is not something that squeezes the life out of us. Rather, it enables us to live securely in your provision. Secure enough, Lord, to make good choices, to walk in the light, to love proactively. We thank you, Lord, for the revelation of your of your word to us today. And I pray that each person in this room and who will hear this in the future will truly, truly walk in the confidence that not only not only are they within your grip of grace, but Lord, the light is already shining and the darkness is passing away. If there's anyone here today who is wondering about that grip of grace, not sure you have it, not sure you have the assurance that God is indeed there to shine his light upon you. There's people here to pray with you. If you're in the midst of turmoil right now and need reassurance, there's people to pray with you. I encourage you. Don't leave here without the opportunity to share that with another and to walk deeper in that old but new commandment. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace toward us. And in the words that you gave Aaron to bless your people, We would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, that means smile on you, and give you his absolutely undeniable, all-pervasive peace. Amen.